Hello and welcome to Good Sex, Bad Sex, a podcast from metro.co.uk. It's a bit like proroguing Parliament, but with a bigger arsehole. Wow. That was a bit too much then, wasn't it? <laughs> My name is Phoebe Lynn. And I'm Miranda Kane. And this week, wow, you know I love a doctor. Oh, we got a doctor who's talking about fantasies. That's right, head fuck. Yes, I'm Dr. Glenn Wilson. I'm a psychologist uh, specialising in personality, sexual behaviour and uh, criminal profiling. BB. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be talking to Dr. Glenn Wilson, yeah. who is going to be teaching us about the psychoanalytics yeah. of your fantasies. Of my fantasies. Particularly your my fantasies. fantasies. You told him about Ronald McDonald. <laughs> what? And the thick shake. No. No, I don't have fantasies. I think sex, <laughs> I think sex is disgusting. <laughs> I don't have... My fantasy is having sex again. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if Dr. Glenn <laughs> can <laughs> help. help. Increasingly, I got um, pulled in to sex partly by media inquiries and uh, came to help them and discovered that the research that would answer their question wasn't available, so I had to do it myself. Uh, and then some of my PhD students began uh, to request that they study things that were close to their own interest very often. Uh, a chap who was um, a certified rubber fetishist came and said that he wanted to study the personality characteristics of rubberites. Uh, so, uh, and there was funding for that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> other, other than him paying his university PhD <laughs> fees, there was no funding. A uh, little bit of departmental analysis, um, allowance, but uh, really um, they don't give grants for that kind of thing. Uh, I tried on a few occasions, but <laughs> they usually found uh, an excuse to deny it. Um, and I'm sure the topic was not impressing them. They thought I was being frivolous or uh, lascivious or something. But surely, like, do you think you'd get funding now for that kind of thing because people are a bit more open-minded? You would be more likely to get funding now, I think, but you would preferably have to connect it with some clinical concern. Um, I had a PhD student recently uh, who worked on the origins of sexuality mm. uh, and being of... Uh, the homosexual persuasion himself, uh, that was his interest to find out where it was coming from and where it was located in the brain. And uh, we did his PhD. Now he has gone off to another university and he gets his funding on the grounds that it has mental health implications. Uh, for example, he would say that, um, that gay men are susceptible to the same sorts of uh, problems as women, mm. and uh, lesbian women tend to have the same sorts of problems as men, and yeah. he will uh, direct his uh, funding applications uh, on, onto questions like that. Um so when it comes to fetishists, would you say that what you do is, and this is the, the title of one of the talks that you're giving, is, where did I put it? Uh, the, oh yeah, whatever turns you on behind your fantasies. So is this where you're psychoanalyzing people's fantasies, where they come from? 
And yes, looking at the way fantasies are distributed, are they different for men and women? How do they connect with libido and satisfaction? When they become dangerous, yeah. of course, mm-hmm. is a, a good topic. And I have done quite a bit of court work in which I've had to give testimony uh, as to how the fantasies might have related to the crime. <gasps> That's where you <laughs> knew producer Sam from. Do you remember when you walked in and you just went, Sam, I know, I know. But, yeah, whatever. Um, but that's the point you're making. Is this isn't just? Um, the, it's not a frivolous study. Absolutely it not. Be. It has important implications. Yeah. That's true. Interestingly, uh, with the topic of fetishism, it uh, began as a mental health problem. It was listed amongst uh, the so-called DSM list of psychological disorders. Uh, they cut it in about 2012. They decided that it was not uh, an illness to have a fetish or to be sadomasochistic or something, that it was so ubiquitous, a little bit like uh, the way masturbation was regarded as a serious disorder before before Kinsey. (laughs) And uh, then they realized that if uh, masturbation made you mad, everybody would be schizophrenic. (laughs) (laughs) That does explain a lot, though, doesn't it? (laughs) So there are shifting sands as to what is a mental health problem and what is not. And fetishism and sadomasochism are now regarded as just uh, common preferences, a bit like different tastes in food. Do you think there is a way where you could, a, a part of the brain where you can place where your fetishes come from? Like, is it is it nature or nurture? Is it something that you've, you know, where you've experienced someone in high heels before and you're like, ah, oh, that's it? Or uh, Well, on, on the first question of where in the brain it's located, I had a, a PhD student who studied uh, the parts of the brain that light up <sighs> when confronted with erotic images, uh, both um, paraphilic and uh, so-called normal control images. What's paraphilic? Paraphilia was the old idea of uh, a kinky bent that uh, was worthy of being treated. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, We've got plenty of paraphilics uh, out there listening right now. Yes. As I say, it it got dropped from the uh, classification of mental health uh, concerns Mm -hmm. and now is only of clinical concern if it um, seriously interferes with your day-to-day life. Uh, It is so obsessional that you can't think of anything else, I think. Uh, Or if it seems like a terrible problem to yourself that you just um, can't resist um, going into the office uh, wearing um, some <laughs> inappropriate uh, clothing or something. Or <laughs> Are you, look, he's yeah. looking at producer Sam. He wears those leather chaps every day. Oh, it's not right. so polished. Yeah. <laughs> so is vegan. They're pleasant. Parts of the brain? That uh, yes, out? going back to the brain areas, what my uh, student discovered, we, we studied a, a group of men who were self-declared paraphiliacs. That is, we advertised for people who were fetishist and sadomasochistics in their own preference Mm. so that it was a self-declared orientation and we studied them uh, compared with control men and what we found was that the normal guy his brain is active in this right parietal area the top uh, slightly back right in the brain uh, and lights up most to conventional sexual images, pornography, if you like. Whereas the the kinky guy, the paraphilic, his uh, major brain activity was in the left frontal 
area, which would imply that it was more to do with verbal scenarios, things like mummy saying, you're a naughty boy, I'm going to spank your bottom really hard, or, <laughs> or something like that. You know? So that seemed to be the area of excitation when the self-declared paraphilic men were looking at their preferred images. And you would be born with that? Uh, hard to know. Um, to, you might to some extent, but I think more likely it's early imprinting in connection with the first sexual stirrings. Yeah. So that um, if the very first time you are feeling sexually aroused as a child, this is probably before the age of five, and you hear clinking high heels coming down the, the corridor, uh, it might be, and as it's your mother approaching, <laughs> then it might be that you somehow connect the, the sexual arousal to that stimulus. Yeah. So it can happen from as young as before five? Yes. There's an interesting study, actually, uh, with men who are particularly interested in pregnancy and lactating women. That's their particular kink. Mm -hmm. And um, you can find people, groups, with any particular interest on the web these days very, very <laughs> <Thank> easily. <God. laughs> so somebody did a study of those guys, and uh, what they found was that what they tended to have in common was that their mother had been nursing a younger sibling, uh, a, a baby, <laughs> in other words, at a time when they themselves were between the ages of two and five. So that would give you the clue that the window for imprinting of sexual preferences is probably between two and five. And we're all doing the maths now, aren't we? We're all thinking about our younger siblings. Yeah. Our older siblings. <laughs> yeah. It's so fascinating. You, you have a sex fantasy questionnaire. Mm -hmm. That's your creation? Yes, uh, along with another PhD student. We put that together. Uh, and uh, we went out and sort of collected common fantasies from the, the usual sources, magazines like Forum, uh, women's magazines, just wherever we could find fantasies that were frequently cited. And uh, we put them all out uh, to people to express their preferences and used a statistical technique known as factor analysis which is a classification procedure. And that gave us um, a result to the effect that there were four main types of fantasy, those that you would call intimate, you know, things like um, making love on a... a, a a beach at night or something oh, and uh, um, oral sex with your much loved partner uh, <laughs> things like that we called intimate yeah. because they grouped together uh, then there was one that was called exploratory uh, which was much more male and tended to be things like group sex threesomes uh, doing unusual things uh, another uh, our third group was uh, called impersonal and it included things like getting turned on by rubber or leather or some kind of clothing or using objects for stimulation, impersonal items. And uh, the, the final one was sadomasochistic. And uh, obviously whipping and spanking and being whipped and spanked. Now, that was the interesting thing is that um, sadism correlated positively with masochism. That is the same person tended to be excited by fantasies on both, both sides. Yeah. Wow. So, so you've got these four groups. How does that knowledge help us? 
Uh, well, it's primarily of interest, <laughs> just general interest because of our curiosity. But um, a lot of people have used that sex fantasy questionnaire in the research uh, and, uh, and in forensic settings. Like um, you've got child abusers and you might want to know which ones are going to go straight when they come out of jail and which are going to be recidivists. Same with rapists, for example. Yeah. So there are these various clinical applications where you get them to answer uh, the question, perhaps before and after a treatment program to see what changes have occurred. And... Um, well, you have to admit, of course, that being self-report, it's eminently yeah. uh, subject to faking. Yeah. And one of the most interesting things about it is that in the case of uh, child um, uh, offenders, the more they appear to have been cured between intake and out uh, and parole, uh, the more likely they are to reoffend. Wow. In other words, the more deceptive and cunning. They seem to have been. Their fantasies probably haven't changed, yeah. but they pretend that they have. And that turns out to be the worrying factor. And is this where you come in? Because you've been used in, you've given testimony in high court cases. Yes. Uh, several high profile ones. And is this where you've come in? And yes. Uh, probably the best known one was the Wimbledon Common murder, where, um, no. you know, a, a woman called Rachel Stagg was uh, brutally stabbed to death in front of her young son. Yeah. And uh, a psychologist, not me, drew up a profile of the likely killer, mm. which included um, a suggestion as to what he would be fantasizing about. And uh, the police went out and they found a guy that appeared to fit the profile fairly well. His name was Colin Stagg. This is all in the public record. And um, they reckoned that his um, profile of sexual fantasies was so close to that that had been predicted by the profiler that they actually arrested him. Ah. And, uh, of course, you can't use a profile in a, like fingerprints. Yeah. This chap, uh, Colin Stagg, spent a year in jail waiting uh, his trial. And um, when it did come to trial, the judge threw it out virtually immediately, uh, partly, I believe, on my testimony to the effect that uh, Stagg's fantasies were not particularly abnormal mm. for a young, virginal young man yeah. as he was. Uh, they were pretty typical, to be honest. Um, yeah, they might seem like, like the sort of thing you wouldn't admit to other people at the time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I knew from my research they're, in fact, extremely common. And the ones that seemed closest to the actual events of the murder... Um, I discovered had been um, evoked by a female undercover cop who had been put on his tail with a brief to get into his fantasies and uh, see if you can uh, discover that he has fantasies about killing women oh. on commons and so on. And um, what she was effectively doing was offering the reward of sex with herself if he could oblige by producing fantasies that were very close to the Wimbledon Common Whoa. killing. Oh. 
so it was what you call shaping of behavior, reinforcing in a Skinnerian kind of a way. Yeah. Uh, so um, I concluded that this was totally unsafe as a means for uh, convicting the guy. The judge agreed. The trial got stopped. The tabloids continued yeah. to behave as though, well, we all know he's guilty. He yeah. got off on a technicality. Oh. But a few years later, um, they got the real killer with DNA evidence. And he was a, a serial killer. Wow. He killed a couple of women after Stagg had been put into jail. No. So uh, by going down that blind alley, the police may have cost the, the taxpayer about three million pounds, it's calculated, and the lives of two innocent women wow. who became victims uh, while the police were uh, focusing on Colin Stagg. God, it's so extraordinary that mm. a fantasy... Yeah, and especially one that's given to you. Yeah. Like, that's 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 a honeypot situation, isn't it? Like, hey, if you want to fuck me on the common at midnight, then that's yeah. the way you get into my pants. That's like, right. He never did confess, but he confessed to a murder um, in the new forest that they could find no trace of. <laughs> he made it up in an attempt to try and uh, oblige her. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. Extraordinary story, See, isn't is it? Why. Yeah. See, I know you're a big fan of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll um, be very surprised to hear that um, I think sex is disgusting. Yes. <laughs> of course. We all do. <laughs> exactly. This is why. It gets too messy. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. wrong men are... I know. What if they're undercover prison? It's, an un it's an undercover cop. It's just all yeah. too messy. Sounds a bit like Woody Allen was once asked, oh. is sex dirty? And he's said only if you're doing it right <laughs> <laughs> see are we even allowed to quote Woody Allen anymore I don't know what's going on um, have you ever come across and I use that broadly um, a fantasy that you couldn't analyse that you couldn't get your head around that you just thought no, all my years of expertise and experience and training, I'm lost. No, the one thing I've uh, got used to is the fact that fantasies are extremely bizarre. And uh, one, for example, um, rather horrific one of a Jewish woman who was a Holocaust survivor who fantasized about being tortured by Nazis. Wow. Uh, so what are we to make of that? I, I mean, I don't imagine she wanted to be tortured by Nazis. She was perhaps just trying to cope with the uh, the memory of it or come to terms with it in, in, in some way. But yeah. th this is how bizarre people's fantasies can be. To make be. that a different sensation. Yeah, yeah, yeah to somehow tilt it, as yeah. you say, to something that you could live with. God, that's so extraordinary, isn't it? Well, the rape fantasy is a hugely popular one, isn't it? That's right. Uh, one of the most common fantasies of women is coercion, shall we say, rather than yeah. rape, because it's a catch-22. They want to be raped by a guy they find extremely desirable. Yeah. Not, not, the, <laughs> yeah. not, not, the, not an actual rapist. Not the stranger who leaps out of the, uh, yeah. the forest at, uh, at night. Yeah. Uh, somebody like the Sheikh in, um, uh, what was that film there? Oh, the love guru. Uh, the, the love uh, guru. Valentino, Rudolf Valentino's um, shake. Glenn's talking yeah. about Valentino, the love yeah, guru. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. What the? I, I'm the, just, or, or maybe Johnny Depp and the Pirates of the yeah. Caribbean to, to bring it up to date a little thinking. bit. So, the so, love guru. I don't so, know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know the love guru, so can't, can't commentate on that. That's the point. I'm sure it's very exciting. <laughs> it's not. Uh, to you, if not to me, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the, the other thing that you discover, of course, is that um, women, I suppose, are not so much interested in the coercion per se as the, the idea that they are irresistibly uh, desirable to some chap. <laughs> that he is, he finds them so desirable that he can't contain himself. That is probably the key element to the coercion fantasy oh. for women. When um, you were saying uh, in that there's differences, obviously, between male and female um, fantasies, the content, but also what the fantasies mean. Can you say more about that? Yes, one of the things we found uh, using our sex fantasy questionnaire was uh, what the fantasies uh, go along with. And for both men and women, they go with high libido, and hence uh, testosterone will increase the frequency of fantasies, particularly exploratory fantasies, incidentally, which seem to be most clearly testosterone-related. But yeah, if you... Um, and, uh, that sort of thing, yeah. But if you give estrogen to a man, you will reduce the amount of fantasy, <laughs> a particularly exploratory fantasy that he has. And if you give testosterone to a woman, perhaps in association with uh, menopausal treatment uh, or treatment for what they call hyposexual desire, that is, insufficient sex drive, then it will raise the number of fantasies that they report. So that's the evidence that testosterone is a key to the frequency of fantasies and libido. But the other thing we found was the connections with satisfaction, which was that uh, in men, uh, frustration goes with a high level of fantasy. That is, if they're not getting it, they think about it a lot. <laughs> Whereas women fantasize more when they're having a good time sexually. They've got a good thing going. They're, they're in love with I some bloke the who's... Gates, so uh, speak. Yeah. yeah. So, you can use that, Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so the, uh, the meaning of those fantasies seems to be um, different. For, we don't expect that, uh, whereas male prisoners are probably thinking about it all the time and uh, finding ways uh, to deal with it, we don't expect necessarily a high rate of sex fantasy in a nunnery. <laughs> oh, you've just uh, taken it too far. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> Monks, yes, but not necessarily nuns. Although, to be to be honest, I haven't actually put my questionnaire in, in that environment, so I can't be sure. Come back when you have. Why would the fantasies be more? Exploratory. I could understand why there'd be more fantasies, but why of that nature? Why exploratory? Why is that male, typical, yeah. testosterone-driven? Uh, well, there is a theory, um, an evolutionary theory called parental investment, which is to the effect that women can only get pregnant once at a time, <laughs> yeah. uh, and therefore they are motivated to, uh, to be breeding with the best man. Uh, whereas in the case of a man, um, if he's got a dud uh, on one occasion, it doesn't matter because he can breed uh, in parallel with, with a lot of women. So it makes sense for him to fantasize about multiple partners. That's just so... Isn't yeah. it, but so it's so basic. Yeah. It's, it's so basic. basic. Yeah. It's about reproducing. Now that's the thing about fantasies is that they're much closer to our natural instincts. 
than what we actually do because our actual sexual behaviour and our attitudes and so on are so much pushed around by what other people will let us do and what church we go to and so on, whereas fantasies are pushing out uh, from the deep recesses. Do you think, like, shame has a bit to do with that? Do you think that people Shame can... uh, may have something to do with it, uh, but interestingly, that can go either way. That um, Yeah, uh, like, that's what I mean. Yeah, I said, when, when, you are, yeah. when you are greatly shamed in a funny kind of a way, that is a sexual impetus in itself. Yeah. Um, and uh, many serial killers, lust killers and so on. Podcast uh, producers. Uh, yeah, that sort of... Yeah. <laughs> person uh, have terrible shame but but it doesn't stop them doing it (laughs) (laughs) thank Um, you (laughs) others of course are just psychopaths and they don't care for anybody else's feelings all of all the above (laughs) oh thank you so much i need to ask one more thing because i'm just so excited yeah (laughs) hang on it's totally gone from my head please edit out this gap that's about to happen i know i was gonna ask you oh you must (laughs) um doctor if um if fantasies are that basic and that that kind of visceral and that's so fundamental to you as a person how important do you think it is to share fantasies A difficult one, because um, in a way we prefer to keep our fantasies personal. Sharing them can sometimes dilute them in a funny kind of way or even kill them, particularly if you activate them with a a willing partner and so on. It can sometimes be a disappointment and the the fantasy is kind of killed. Uh, If you want to share fantasies with your partner, be careful, because they always say that I won't be jealous if you tell me you are fantasizing about somebody other than me. But uh, in the event, (laughs) they are very sensitive and uh, it can harm the relationship. Uh, You're better off, uh, if you want to share fantasies, to get some independent erotic material that you view together so that it wasn't sourced from yourself but from somebody else out there and uh, you, you might both connect with it in slightly different ways and both get turned on. That is good. Nice. That nice. is excellent advice. Um, when's this talk? So we have the, we've got loads going on. Um, we've got Freud and the Psychoanalytics of Desire. Uh, that's happening in Moorgate on 24th September and Cardiff on the 7th of October. And whatever turns you on behind your fantasies, which is what we've been talking more about, that's happening in Shoreditch on the 28th of October. But are you going to be doing more funding talks? Uh, I would think so, yes. I usually have a few in the pipeline at any one time but they only booked them a month or two in, oh. in advance because you've got loads of others you've got stuff like how to profile a serial killer which we're going to get yeah. you in for another time hopefully yeah. <laughs> just for my own yeah. personal <laughs> fantasy one, one of those coming up in Chiswick in a few weeks time Chiswick. yes oh, the, the King George pub is uh, hosting me there oh brilliant but interesting there that you, you mention whatever turns you on uh, behind your fantasies as the title of mm. the one that I'm giving in Shoreditch on I think it's October the 28th Yes. Uh, <laughs> well done. Throwing in another plug there. Uh, but uh, uh, I was not allowed to have the word sexual fantasies in the title. Really? Uh, and Funzing said that Facebook will not allow it. That they, whether it gets automatically um, Say it in Russian, binned or, allow it or, or something. But we got around it by saying whatever turns you on, uh, behind your fantasies, yeah. the word sexual does not uh, appear there. 
And uh, another interesting bit of um, Facebook uh, Puritanism, they are, obviously they're getting a bit paranoid at the moment, <laughs> was that in my Freud talk um, I had um, a classic um, Madonna uh, and Child painting from medieval times uh, as my sort of front piece. And Facebook would not allow it because there was a nipple showing. Oh. This is a medieval artist. Yeah. <laughs> would you believe? And uh, apparently it's been sen- censored. Yeah. <laughs> by, oh. by Facebook. It's a w- amazing how the world uh, comes and goes with in terms of tolerance of images like that, isn't it's it? Absolutely. And this prudency. And it's absolutely like... Sorry, but, <laughs> well, you can cut this bit out. But he's also like really patriarchal as well because it's only the women's nipples that are getting oh, yeah. blocked, but the men's. Yeah, you can have like you know all your Calvin Klein models and underwear models. Yeah, they have them in shows. Jane Austen serialisations now, yeah, don't they? <laughs> yeah, but you can't. It's all the like in the, even like you said, all medieval paintings mm. of women. My friend got um, she's got um, <gasps> oh yeah yeah she does the yeah. medieval. What was her name? Um, Nipples. Uh, the uh, the woman, um, um, uh, the prostitute from like the Victorian era. Um, I want to say Lily Cole. Fanny Hill. Yeah, yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, and she's got a, she's got very famous painting where it's just like a nipple peeking out. But that got banned off. Nell Gwyn. Nell Gwyn. There we go. Right, yeah. <laughs> Lily Cole. I was so glad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <Love yes>. Guru. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've had a big summer break. Oh, my mind's yeah. not in it. Um, this is so fascinating. Thank you so much for telling us all about this. I'm, my, little, my little brain's blown. Oh, no. Um, in the lift, tell Miranda what your fantasy is, and she can tell us the worst thing. Because <laughs> yeah, I can't ask her loud. It's, uh, it's sex in a lift. Like, <laughs> you're so funny. <laughs> you understood it though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he was very nice and he smiled politely, so that was great for me. But wasn't that interesting? Like, I did, you know, the the majority of it. I got. <laughs> it was fascinating. I think your eyes lit up when he said that maybe, probably, our fantasies are kind of set from between age two and five. That was, and your eyes lit up when he entered the room. So I. <laughs> I thought that was so interesting. I never would have thought, like, of all the... the I've spoken to so many people about where do fantasies come from because some people are saying, oh, uh, there's the thing that connects them in your brain. Oh, it's uh, from stuff that happens to you when you're younger or whatever. But from two till five. Yeah, that's why you've got that thing about Farley's Rusk. That's true. <laughs> do love a Rusk. <laughs> My name is BB Lynch. <laughs> and I'm Miranda Kane. Good Sex, Bad Sex was produced by Sam Bonham for Metro.co.uk. And if you are Rusks and you want to sponsor us, you can contact us on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> at Good Sex, Bad Sex, Triple X. Yeah. Um, also, if you have a sexy question, I have no idea what a sexy question is, but if you've got a question that is sexy or a query, <laughs> um, get in touch. Info at sexpod.co.uk. And we will see you next week. God willing. Mm-hmm.